The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Talk, talk, talk. Oh, you lied to me. Okay. All right. Andrea asked me to fill in for her tonight and next week, and I'm going to be doing a talk in two parts. So this is obviously part one. Um, And tonight I'm going to talk about what are the causes of conflict? How do we create conflict in our lives? And next week, I'll talk about some practices to use while we're in the middle of conflict, while we're in the midst of conflict. This is a wonderful poem by Robert Bly. It's entitled, Things to Think. Think in ways you've never thought before. If the phone rings, think of it as carrying a message larger than anything you've ever heard, vaster than a hundred lines of Yeats. Think that someone may bring a bear to your door, may be wounded and deranged, or think that a moose has risen out of the lake and he's carrying on his antlers a child of your own whom you've never seen. When someone knocks on the door, Think that he's about to give you something large, tell you you're forgiven, or that it's not necessary to work all the time, or that it's been decided that if you lie down, no one will die. It's really difficult for us to think out of the box or creatively or differently than the way we have habituated our minds to think. In fact, we really don't think at all. We imagine that we're thinking, but what's happening is the neuronal pathways that we've created in our minds are simply running patterns of thoughts that we think in Habitually, we have getting up in the morning thoughts. We have getting ready to eat thoughts. We have I'm hungry, I shouldn't be eaten now thoughts. We have going to work thoughts. We have being at work thoughts. We have wishing we were not at work thoughts. Coming home dealing with the errands and things to do, trying to remember where the car keys are, thoughts. And many patterns of thoughts. If we see someone we've known for a long time, like our mother, for example, or our father, or one of our children, we have a whole set of thought patterns that go with that person a history that comes right there as soon as we think about them or see them or hear their voice on the telephone. This 
pattern of thinking and believing that it's our independent thoughts is really the source of all our conflict. Because we get hooked into one of our patterns and then we are in conflict with someone who has a different pattern. Our minds are actually stimulus response machines. We have trained them that way and we operate quite well that way because we have so much stimuli that come into us that if we didn't have the ability to think in patterns, we'd be dead. Driving in traffic, for example. We have to react very quickly in certain ways. And fortunately, those of us with experience driving are able to do that. If you play a musical instrument, those patterns are grooved into your brain. So what we think of is thinking is simply our reaction to the causes and conditions that are happening in that moment. And if one of those causes and conditions is someone with whom we have conflict, then that cause, that person with whom we have conflict, gives rise to, creates certain thinking patterns. And we're off and running. And so are they. It's all rather depressing when we think about it in this way, isn't it? It's sort of, about, sort of like reading the newspaper lately and skimming the headlines. This country's blowing up and that country's blowing up and women are being raped and abused here and uh, Stanford just let somebody finish their degree after molesting a young woman. And I heard that on the radio coming down here on NPR and how outraged the students are in their protesting. And all the conditions that are happening around us. So how does our practice, how can our practice guide us through the waves of patterns of thinking that give rise to our conflict and guide us through the suffering that we see around us and that we experience ourselves. The Buddha taught that there were three hallucinations of perceptions. Now, I'm old enough to have really enjoyed a time when I deliberately hallucinated with the aid of... uh, substances that since I'm being recorded I won't say but it's way past the uh, statute of limitations so I have nothing to worry about. But those kinds of hallucinations I was generally aware of when I was having them. I'm not so aware. It's much harder for me to be aware of these three deeply ingrained hallucinations that we all share. We take what is impermanent to be permanent and that's called 
anicca. We take what is suffering and dissatisfying to be what brings happiness and is satisfying. And that's called dukkha. And we take what is not self to be a permanent self and that's called anatta. So those are called the three characteristics or in the particular talk that I, of the Buddhas that I studied for this talk, he called them the three hallucinations. I kind of like that um, description of them. And really, we see all of life through those three windows. We have conditioned ourselves to do that. And our parents conditioned us, and their parents conditioned them and their parents before them. And many of these, this conditioning is the reason we survived. Had we not been conditioned to react quickly under certain circumstances, had our ancestors not been, we wouldn't be here because they wouldn't have been in the gene pool. But they did react quickly when the saber-toothed tiger came And the stimulus fear response got deeply ingrained in us. But it doesn't lead to happiness. And it doesn't lead to awakening. It doesn't lead to compassion and connection and the ability to deeply be in the midst of conflict and hold our heart open. So, how do we find a way through, not out of, but through awareness of these hallucinations? There's even a definition in Wikipedia for them. Wikipedia doesn't know that it's a definition for the three characteristics, but I happened to look it up because I knew that I could find something there. It's called inattentional blindness. And Wikipedia defines that as the failure to notice an unexpected stimulus that is in one's field of vision when other attention-demanding tasks are being performed. So, when we are focused on that which we have trained our mind to see, and we are focused on acting in ways that we have trained our mind to act, then when something comes along that's different from that, we literally don't see it, don't hear it, Don't notice it. So if I have a deep perception of how my sister is, if she acted differently from that, I wouldn't notice it. Because she's still my sister and she's supposed to act in a certain way, the same way she's acted towards me as my big sister since she would take my food and send me home to get things and not play with me when I was a kid. And so 
as far as I'm concerned, she hasn't changed a bit. But who knows? Because I'm the one that sees her that way. Other people did not have that experience with her. And in my world, that's the way she is. Just like I'm the annoying little brother in hers. So, there have been a lot of studies on inattentional blindness. And you may have seen one particular one that's quite famous on the uh, internet. It's a test and you can take it yourself. The video comes on and the instructions are there's people on a basketball court and the instructions are count how many tosses of the basketball there are. And so the people are tossing the basketball back and forth and in the middle of that a person in a gorilla suit walks in and goes like this and turns around and walks out. And then they've tested how many people see the gorilla. And less than 50% see the gorilla. And it is really clearly there. You can't miss it unless you're so focused on your task, so focused on what you believe you were instructed to do that you don't see it. The worst and most frightening test is the test of pilots in a flight simulation where a plane was put on the runway in the simulation and 25% of the pilots landed right on top of the plane because they didn't see it. They were experienced pilots They didn't expect there to be a plane on the runway in the simulation, so they didn't see it. And we would have all been dead if we had been in that plane. So we don't see what doesn't fit is unusual or abnormal. And our culture has taught us to expect to see things in a certain way. The Buddha taught these three hallucinations as the way we have trained our minds to see, regardless of the evidence. It's the way we expect life to be. And as a result, we find ourselves in conflict. So, we see things as permanent. I was just, the reason I was cutting it very, very close getting here tonight is I had a very difficult mediation at court today with a sad older gentleman who was actually a real estate investor and I think quite wealthy at one time. And he got caught in the bubble. He got caught in all the mortgage fraud that happened and he lost millions of dollars and lots of property. And he's now suing the banks without a lawyer. And he's suing them on basis, on legal basis, that he doesn't stand a chance. They're not proper legal bases to be filing the suits that he's filing. 
And one of the judges before whom he has a suit had compassion for him and asked me if I would try to mediate the case and see if I could help him. So I spent the day building a relationship with him so that he would trust me and then giving him the best advice I could about how to deal with his situation. And when we broke for a rather late lunch, he was really clear and it seemed to me like he was going to figure out a sensible way to get out of the further mess that he had created. And then the miasma sat back over and I could just see that he had come out and I could literally see him retreat back in to the place where he just could not hear me anymore. He couldn't let go. And think in your life of the times and places where you have done exactly that. Where life has been hitting you upside the head with a two-by-four over and over again. And you have kept going down the tunnel where there's no cheese. You've heard me, some of you, tell the difference between rats and people. Yes? Well, if you put rats in a maze, say there are four tunnels, and you put cheese down, say tunnel number three, the rats will go into the maze and go down tunnel number one, there's no cheese, they'll come out, they'll go down tunnel number two, there's no cheese, they'll come out, they'll go down tunnel number three, there's cheese. And they'll put them back in, they'll go down tunnel number three repeatedly. If you move the cheese to tunnel number two, let's say, the rats will go in the maze, they'll go to tunnel number three, they'll come out, there's no cheese, they'll go back in, go down tunnel number three, there's still no cheese. But then, unlike human beings, they will try tunnel number one and tunnel number two until they find the cheese in a different tunnel. We, however, will keep going down tunnel number three over and over again even though there's no cheese there. We know there's no cheese there. True? It's certainly true for me. (laughs) So, at the start of my lawyer career, I was the first public defender in Charleston, South Carolina in the 70s. And that was not a very popular job to have. There weren't a lot of applicants for it. It was not a popular job to have. Really isn't anywhere in the country, unfortunately. But certainly not in the 70s in South Carolina. And I was really good at it. It took me a while to figure it out. But after about a year or two, I was really good. And about... One or two percent of criminal cases actually go to a jury trial. And of that one or two percent, about one percent actually the defendant is found not guilty. So 
a very tiny percentage are found not guilty. Of course, that's not what you hear on the media because the media expands things that are anomalies and we think differently. But in reality, that's the way it works. So I had a client named Robert Lee Robinson and he was quite a nice young man, but he had a propensity to get in trouble and usually in big trouble. And we had one trial and I can't remember what the first one was about and the jury found him not guilty. And six or eight months later, he got arrested again. And this was for uh, uh, robbing, I think it was for robbing a, a, one of these like 7-Eleven stores or something like that. And the witness was on the witness stand and said, yes, I saw the getaway car and it was a white car of some make and model and it had gangster white walls and he leaned over to me and whispered I don't have gangster white walls and so I on a break I asked him well who knows that you don't have gangster white walls and he said Joe who runs the Gulf station down on Line Street uh, because that's where I get my car serviced so I sent my investigator down to the Gulf Station on Line Street and a couple hours later, just at the right time because I had a really good investigator named Amos Scipio Jones. Amos comes to the back door of the court and gets my attention and in walks a guy from the Gulf Station with a Gulf shirt on and a name label that says Joe and he's got grease and, you know, he clearly works at the Gulf Station. So I put Joe on the stand and I said, do you know the defendant Robert Lee Robinson? Yes, I do. Do you service his car? Yes, I do. He comes to my station all the time and he has such and such a kind of car. And have you ever fixed his tires? Yes, I have. Does he have gangster white walls? No, he does not. And the jury found him not guilty. So, then about six or eight months later, He's arrested again, the third time. And this time, he was caught in the laundry getting his jacket laundered, putting it in to get it laundered. And there were rings in the pockets from the jewelry store that he was accused of robbing and rings on his fingers when he got caught. So this one was really tough. And we tried that case and the jury found him not guilty. I thought I was hot stuff. I was about 31 or 2 years old. I actually had hair and it was a nice afro. And I was really smart and you would not have liked me at all. (laughs) But I thought I was really hot stuff. Now, looking back on it, I see that I was taking what was impermanent to be permanent. That I was so good that this was all about me. 
So I was making the Anicca mistake also, the self mistake. I was having these victories be about me and how good I was as a lawyer and how skillful I was and that it was permanent, that I would always be that good and that skillful. And so the things that I was doing in my life at the time, like smoking and drinking too much sometimes and uh, ingesting other substances, certainly were good for me because look at how good I was. So the things that would actually in the long term lead to suffering and decay of my body, I was taking as being satisfying and helpful for me to do. Working long hours, being very aggressive with people, very assertive. I knew I was right and I was so articulate and verbal that you just didn't want to get in my way. That's the way we do it. And I was clinging to this view of myself. So we cling to that which is impermanent and that leads to suffering. And we make both that which we're clinging to and the act of clinging and the suffering, we make that all a story about us. So we create who we believe ourselves to be in that way. And we develop many patterns like that over and over in our lives and cling to it. So the three hallucinations show up in the actual day-to-day, moment-by-moment way that we live our lives. Each of our relationships is built around some aspect of those hallucinations. The people we really love, for example, we have a view of them that they act a certain way. And when they don't act in the way that we expect or want them to act, there's conflict. Or if they leave, if they leave our life, then there's real conflict. And we expect them to stay exactly the way they were on that time that we first met them and either fell in love with them or became their best friend. And they change. No, they go off and decide to go to school or change their job or move all the way across to the east side of the country or do something like that. They change. And we're clinging to that. And so we suffer. And we take what is suffering and dissatisfying to be what brings us happiness. So the clinging to someone being a certain way or to our life being a certain way or to our having this job and that this job is going to be permanent and we're going to have this great career. I was going to be the best trial lawyer 
that the world had ever known. I was on that path. I was so good. And we cling to that. And that becomes... It's actually crazy because nothing about life is permanent. And when we are rational about it, we see that. And so by clinging to something which is impermanent, naturally we create suffering. So, a number of years passed and I was now out of the public defender office. I had taken a couple of years to write the great American novel and I just saw it the other day in my storage bin where it rests in a box. Um, it was, it's entitled Escape from Maya and it was really a great, great American novel. Almost got it published, but almost isn't it. And by this time, I was, uh, had given up the writing, and I was back practicing law with my law partner was a state senator. And we had an office, nice office and secretaries and investigators and all that stuff and I was working very hard and very busy and I did other kinds of law but also continued to do criminal law and one day a man came in to see me to ask me to represent him and it turned out that he was head of the International Longshoremen's Union in Charleston and the feds were investigating him and they were investigating the unions up and down the East Coast at that time for corruption of some kind. I don't remember exactly. And we talked about my representing him, and he told me what the case was about, and I quoted him a fee, and he agreed to pay it. And as he got up to leave, as I did with any new client, I asked him, how did you come to me and he said you don't remember me and I looked at him and I said no sir I'm sorry I I really don't and he said well do you remember that case of that young man who was uh, charged with robbing the jewelry store and had oh yes and I you know I swelled up with pride and I was just oh Yeah, he saw how good a lawyer I was, and now, six, seven years later, he's come to me for help. Isn't that great? And I write into the ego of that time of my life. And he said, yes, I was on that jury. And I said, really? Just just bubbling over, practically bursting. And he said, yes, uh, if you recall, the jury, the case concluded on a Friday. And the jury was out on Friday evening. And while you were giving your closing argument, I looked out into the courtroom and I saw three FBI agents sitting in the courtroom. And I knew they were coming to get me. 
And so I hung the jury. It was 11 to 1 for conviction. (laughs) But it was Friday night, and after it got to be about 10.30 or 11 o'clock, people got angry, and they were tired of it, and they wanted to go home. And so they all voted for acquittal. Deflation. It wasn't really about me. After all, it had nothing whatsoever to do with me, or my skill, or my brilliance, or my articulateness, or my smashing closing argument, or how devastating my cross-examination was of the sweet older lady who owned that jewelry store that I had made to look like a liar. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with this man standing in front of me who hung the jury. But we still make it up that things that happen in our lives are about me. That there is some collection of something that is permanent, that's unchanging, that's called Daniel. And that Daniel exists in some graspable, fundamental, permanent way. The Buddha said, what, that what is impermanent leads to suffering. So what is impermanent is not appropriate to be called the self. He said, everything that arises based on causes and conditions is impermanent, meaning there is nothing appropriate to be called the self because everything we experience arises from causes and conditions, except the state of awakening or nibbana. We are the result of causes and conditions. The causes and conditions of our parents, the causes of condition and conditions of our environment, the causes and conditions of our siblings or lack of siblings, the causes and conditions of how we were fed and how we were nurtured or not nurtured, all the events that happened to us, All of those, the winning of the Robert Lee Robinson trial and the deflation that followed it, those are causes and conditions. And can you see how each of those I took to be about me? But how could it be about me because it was just the causes and conditions that was happening at that time? I thought... I had everything to do with winning that jury trial and all the others. But when I had the, when life hit me upside the head with the reality that it wasn't about me, as you can imagine, at that moment it was extraordinarily deflating. Because the self that I believed I was was revealed to me in that moment as being a fig newton of my imagination. 
And so that's the way life is with us all. And when we have the inflationary events that happen that create our feeling good about this self called Daniel and feeling proud of ourselves and feeling energized by life, we feel up and good. And then when the man comes into the office and says, I hung the jury because I didn't want to get arrested and I discover that it wasn't true, then I have the depressed and deflated and woe is me self. But that's caused by causes and conditions too. And that's no more true than the grandiose, I did everything. It was all about me and all my talents, self. Neither is a self because both arise from causes and conditions that are outside our control. And yet, the mystery is that's all we ever experience. We can't experience anything that's not arising from causes and conditions that are happening right then. In this moment, you are experiencing the causes and conditions of my being here and your being here and everyone else being here in this moment for us to have this talk right now. And that's not about me and it's not about you. We're here. It's the mystery of life. So if we take the inflated Daniel, which we see a lot in the world, the grabbing for power, the grabbing for money, the grabbing for external praise. And then we also see, because we've got such a uh, Twitterized, uh, glamour magazine-focused culture, we see all the suffering that those beings in the Hollywood and wherever else the politicians and all go through. They're going through that same disconnect that I went through in that story and that you go through in your life. When you take things that are permanent to, I'm sorry, that are impermanent to be permanent. So why is it this way? It's so weird. It's ungraspable. It's unknowable. The Blessed One took up a little bit of soil in his fingernail and said to the bhikkhu, the bhikkhu being a monk, but really it means all of us, because the bhikkhu had asked the Buddha, is there anything in this world that is permanent, stable, eternal, and not subject to change? And the Buddha took up a little bit of soil and said, there is not even this much form that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change. If there was this much form that was permanent, stable, eternal, 
not subject to change. The living of this holy life for the complete destruction of suffering could not be discerned, could not be understood. But because there is not this much form that is permanent, stable, eternal, subject to change, this living of the holy life for the complete destruction of suffering is discernible, is possible. So what does that mysterious quotation mean? We create out of the self that we believed ourselves to be the and out of the causes and conditions into which we have placed ourselves and into which life has placed ourselves, we create a view of who we are and who other people are. And that view is subject to all the causes and conditions that arise continually in life, meaning it is constantly changing. But that's all we can know. And because it's all we can know, we believe that is life. When we sit and meditate, we reveal to ourselves a different place. We reveal to ourselves the glimpse and opening for something that is deeply embedded in compassion, that's deeply embedded in wisdom, the wisdom to know that, that clinging causes us to suffer and aversion causes us to suffer and delusion causes us to suffer. And we begin to see that our mind thinks in patterns. We begin to see those patterns and see how habitual they are. And as our mind quietens, and as our practice deepens, the mystery of that permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, that mystery becomes knowable to us. Whereas without the practice, all we can know is this unstable, impermanent, suffering-filled, imaginary self-filled world. The Buddha never said there is no self. He said you can't know the self in this way because it's impermanent. It keeps changing. And do you know anyone in your life that doesn't keep changing? How about you? Have you remained stable, permanent, unchanging? Of course you haven't. We can't know anything. In reality, we can't know anything that is stable, permanent, and not subject to change. The only way we know that is through meditation and through deeply knowing 
and experiencing a different reality of life. So mindfulness is the path. And when we're caught in the conflict of all this swirling change and we're trying to hold on to people to be this way and we're trying to make sure our life is stable in this way and some external force just wipes it all away and we're thrown about. How can we recreate our life again? How can we go forward? We want something very important to us. We want our children to be a certain way or we want to have children or we don't want to have children. We want to be married or we don't want to be married. All the things that we want, they're constantly subject to change and they're outside of our control. It's very hard being a human being, especially in this world, because of this constant change, constant suffering, and constant believing this is Daniel and discovering that that was a Fig Newton of my imagination. So the rug keeps keeps getting pulled out from under us. So no wonder we have a lot of conflict. It's not, as I said, that there's no self called Daniel. It's the one I constructed is the only one I can see. So what I can perceive is not the self because it is not permanent, it is not eternal, and it is subject to change. That's all we can see through the minds that we have created for ourselves. It's as if life were a dream. And so, if we allow the thoughts and experience to arise and pass away, and say, oh, Here are my getting up in the morning thoughts. Oh, they're arising right on time. I'm brushing my teeth. And I'm looking in the mirror and thinking, oh, you're really, really getting old. There's no much hair there. And I think those thoughts every morning when I look in the mirror or whatever thoughts you think when you look in the mirror. And then we eat breakfast and we think those breakfast thoughts and we go to work and we think those go-to-work thoughts. But those all combine to be me. And then I think the thoughts about my wife Dana and those all combine to be Dana. And then when she's different, I suffer. And when I'm different, I suffer. So where exactly is now? Because as soon as we try to describe now, it's gone. Was it our imagination? Is there any part of life that's permanent? Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 
life is but a dream. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. This is entitled, I Go Among the Trees by Wendell Berry. I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. And what it fears in me leaves me. And the fear of me leaves it. It sings and I hear its song. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. So have you noticed when you practice that fears come up? Thoughts come up of fears? So it's afraid of me. It comes and lives a while in my sight when I'm quiet. And what it fears in me leaves, and the fear of me leaves it, it sings and I hear its song. So a fear arises and we sit with it. If we resist it and try to push it away, it gets stronger. If we cling to it and hold on to it, it gets stronger. If we relax and breathe and watch it and note it and be mindful of it, it passes away. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves me, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. After days of labor, mute in my consternations, I hear my song at last, and I sing it. As we sing, the day turns, the trees move. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. It's so nice to see you, and I hope I see some of you next week, or all of you next week. That would be nice.